Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. I'm Jeremy Heiner. And I'm Sass Elisha. And today we're going to continue talking about shock states. We are almost done with this segment. That's right. So buckle up, get ready. What time is it, Sass? It is go time. It's go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks, including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. All right, so we're going to do a short review of our Shock State series. And again, our crisis checklists are either going to be out or are out by now, and they are going to be on the Beyond the Mass podcast where you're going to be able to download them for free yep they're on their website excellent all right so shock simple simple definition inadequate amount of oxygen delivery to the tissues so whatever the mechanism is blood pressure is going to be low and the tissues aren't getting oxygen so when we think about the cardiovascular system jeremy and i like to think about it in terms of three separate parts one is the intravascular volume which is we use the analogy of a tank Next is the heart, the pump, and then lastly, the vasculature that distribute blood to the tissues, we call those the pipe. So if the tank is low and the pump is fine and the pipes are fine, we have an issue with hypovolemic shock. With pump inadequacy, we can have cardiogenic shock or cardiac compressive shock. And if it's a problem with the pipes, massive vasodilation, It could be neurogenic shock, anaphylactic shock, or lastly, septic shock. All right, thanks for that recap, Sass. As we've done before, we're going to set this particular shock state up today with a case. So we have a 78-year-old male who came into the ER. He was at home and started developing an altered level of consciousness about 30 minutes ago. Now, on initial examination, his eyes are open. He responds to voice. He does not respond well to questioning, although he is moving all of his extremities. His vital signs are blood pressure 86 over 52, heart rate of 62, respiratory rate of 28. He's satting 92%, and this is on six liters of 
oxygen via face mask. We do have a history on him. He's diabetic, type 2. He's been a smoker for several years, has asthma. Three years ago, he had a CVA and at this point only has minimal residual deficits and he has stable angina. The medications he's taking are atenolol, albuterol, baby aspirin, nitroglycerin, sublingual, and that's only PRN, glipizide, and Zestrel. All right, now, Sass, uh, we have this case set up. What do you think about the overall picture of this patient? Yeah, so I'm not liking it at all. <laughs> no, not really. So, you know, as we look at this, his blood pressure is really low. His respiratory rate is really high, of course, trying to compensate, and his saturation is low. We assume that he has vascular disease with his diabetes, his stroke in the past. Um, we possibly could think about why is his saturation low. He's a smoker and he has asthma, so that's also a possibility. Um, in addition, if he, ha you know, if it is a pump problem, and his medication list is long, and those medications are going to decrease his cardiovascular system's ability to compensate for a low blood pressure, such as a tenolol. He's also taking Zestril, certainly a dilator. So with that whole picture, Jeremy, what are some things that you would order to try to rule out what's going on or rule in? Yeah, so right away, the ER is going to be doing this as soon as they get somebody with this clinical picture going on. They're going to get an EKG right off the bat. And they're probably going to check a blood sugar, likely get a chest x-ray, and then, of course, send some labs such as a troponin, a lactate, an H&H, &H, electrolytes, and some coags. Okay, so Sass, we get the EKG back, and it says ST segment elevation in leads 1, AVL, and V3 through V6. So what is this consistent with? It's consistent with anterior lateral MI, which is certainly a problem. Dang, you are good. <laughs> yeah. EKG skills. So um, the anterior myocardium receives vascular blood supply via the left anterior descending coronary artery. Sustained ischemia, as we know, due to LAD artery occlusion, leads to an anterior MI. Atherosclerotic plaque followed by thrombus formation, as we know, is the most common cause of an anterior MI. Now, Jeremy, there are some risk factors that are associated uh, for people with CAD. What yeah. are they? Yeah, so coronary artery disease, hypertension is a big one. Uh, hyperlipidemia, that's why all of those patients are on um, the anti-lipid medication. Uh, diabetes is another one. Obesity and smoking. So our particular patient has several of these risk factors. All right, so Sass, what are the overall goals here for managing this patient who looks like he's having uh, an occlusion of his anterior descending coronary artery? Yeah, the essential goal is to reestablish blood flow and get oxygen to the tissue. So certainly here in this very complex situation, you're going to need a cardiologist. And let's talk a little bit just to review what the ACC and AHA, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association's guidelines are for someone who's having an MI. Their goals are to have fibrinolysis within 30 minutes of entering the ER or having PCI, a percutaneous coronary intervention within 90 minutes 
of entering the ER. And of course, not everybody is a candidate for fibrinolysis. So significant and irreversible loss of cardiac muscle is associated with times that are occlusion or decreased perfusion of greater than 120 minutes. So, you know, Jeremy, this is a good discussion we were just having. What is the difference between an MI and someone that has cardiogenic shock? So someone can be having an MI, but the NMI is an evolution, right? There's a time period. It doesn't have to be a massive MI. So with someone having an MI, they may not have any problems with stroke volume. Their stroke volume may be adequate. Their blood pressure may be normal or even high. Now, certainly as that MI continues, that all can change. But someone in cardiogenic shock, the decreased amount of perfusion is so significant that the heart muscle in terms of its performance is so decreased that the patient develops hypotension. So somebody who is having an MI could theoretically still maintain adequate cardiac output. However, somebody in cardiogenic shock has a decreased stroke volume, a decreased cardiac output, which then there's decreased blood flow everywhere to every organ. Exactly. And whether someone has an MI and is in cardiogenic shock immediately, such as someone with a complete LAD occlusion, or having an MI where at this point in time, the blood pressure is fine, both are you know significant emergencies that need to be dealt with. Okay, perfect. So we've set up this case through the ER. Now, every anesthesia provider, every nurse anesthetist was uh, either an ICU nurse or an ER nurse in their past life. So they probably saw these kind of situations. However, now we're in the operating room a lot. And what happens if we see ST elevation or depression, basically ST changes intraoperatively? So what do we do with that? Yeah, it's complicated. So all of a sudden, are there EKG changes, like you said, showing ST depression, and the patient goes from having a elevation or depression, and the patient goes from having a fine blood pressure to almost no blood pressure? Well, we know what the intervention is there, certainly to decrease our anesthetic depth or turn it off, to have the surgeon stop doing surgery, to give 100% oxygen, to get a cardiologist involved, to get vasopressors to get the blood pressure up, to get fluids to try to get the blood pressure up. And that one is pretty cut. And, and then, of course, as I mentioned, a cardiologist, that one's pretty cut and dry. But what happens? What do we do relative to someone having changes that has a fine blood pressure? It's certainly going to depend if they're... If, maybe the MI or maybe the ST segment changes are caused by an increase in blood pressure. And by decreasing the blood pressure, the changes go away. Maybe the decrease in oxygen, oxygenation to the heart, maybe it doesn't have to do with coronary artery occlusion. Maybe it has to do with the surgeon losing blood and overall decreasing the hemoglobin. So this all comes down to assessment, right? What does the blood pressure look like? And what does the EKG look like? 
Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Okay, Sass, so now let's talk signs and symptoms, both in an awake patient and in an anesthetized patient. So in somebody who's awake, so let's go back to our ER patient. This patient came in and they were likely a little anxious. They definitely had an altered level of consciousness. So that's their neurologic assessment. Respiratory wise, they were breathing a little quickly. They had a low saturation and we really didn't get a, a, a CO2 value on, on them, but we sent some labs. So we'll, we'll get something like that. We should be listening to their chest too. Should we, we should be listening for wheezing or rails. Is the cardiovascular compromise enough that now there's going to be fluid on the lungs because of the pump that's not working correctly? And then cardiovascular-wise, we've talked about the EKG changes. We've talked about decompensation because the pump isn't working adequately enough. Dysrhythmias is another sign, a cardiovascular sign. Of course, the ST segment abnormalities. An awake patient might be complaining of chest pain. That's a pretty straightforward one. And then let's uh, let's assess pulses, peripheral pulses. Are are those bounding? Are they decreased? Are they absent? Let's look at those. Now, what about somebody who's anesthetized, SAS? What kind of signs and symptoms, other than ST segment changes, would we be looking for? Yeah, in someone who's anesthetized, as you mentioned, the neurologic signs we can assess for, of course. Um, if so you're doing your job right. There least, right? you go, if you're doing your job right. So really the overall sign that you're going to see is unexplained hypotension that does not, uh, is not treated with fluid and vasopressors. And then one other thing I'm going to mention here, which is going to make the water a little bit more muddy, this patient is taking a beta blocker. So in terms of compensation, he's, if he's well beta blocked, which with his history he probably would be, he's not going to be incredibly tachycardic. He's probably going to stay at that heart rate around 60. Yeah, so tachycardia would not be a, a real reliable type of a sign because we simply might not see it. Perfect. All right, now let's move on. We've talked about signs and symptoms. Let's talk about diagnostic criteria for a myocardial infarction. Uh, Sass, talk to me about that. What, what are the diagnostic criteria? So we've already talked about the signs and symptoms. You were mentioning those. Of course, we wanted to get a chest x-ray to see if the patient had developed pulmonary edema acutely or if their heart all of a sudden seems enlarged if they, in this patient certainly would, have a past EKG. We know the presence of pulmonary edema that happens rapidly is a poor prognosis suggesting that there's a decrease in stroke volume. We're going to certainly look at EKG, which we talked about, and that was also diagnostic. We're going to look at the labs. You talked about H&H, &H, and we're going to see if they're anemic. We're going to see if they have any electrolyte abnormalities. We're going to look at a lactate level. And we will also be looking at troponins as well, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so just as a quick review, cardiac troponins, these are regulatory proteins, and they are contained within the myocardium they're released into circulation when the myocyte has been damaged. Very high troponin levels, that's a sign of an MI or a heart attack. Most patients who've had heart attacks 
have increased troponin levels usually within about six hours. And we're looking for troponin concentrations above 0.40 nanograms per milliliter and higher. This usually indicates some degree of myocardial infarction. So Jeremy, the transthoracic echocardiography is certainly a standard of care these days. Yeah, so definitely some type of echocardiogram. And we have two types, right? We have either the transthoracic or the esophageal. Now, in a critical situation, they're probably going to go right to a transthoracic because that's just easier. You put the, the ultrasound probe right on the chest. And that can help diagnose acute MIs looking at wall motion abnormalities. This will help to rule out other alternate causes of chest pain as well, like a pericardial effusion, an aortic valve that's stenotic, or even an aortic di dissection. So what a transthoracic echocardiogram does is it, es it can estimate left ventricular ejection fractions and, like I mentioned, wall motion abnormalities. The sonographer will essentially just press the transducer on the thoracic cage, aiming it at the heart. And they can look at different views, either a parasternal short or long view, an apical, subcostal, or suprasternal views. And what's nice is the American Society of Echocardio Echocardiography has put together a nice educational book and DVD. You can look for that online. It, there is a, a, a minimal cost associated with that, but it will describe how to perform a transthoracic echocardiogram. Now, SAS, we talked about we're looking for wall motion abnormalities. What's the mechanism involved in these wall motion abnormalities? Yeah, so we've been talking about decreased oxygen, decreased oxygen, decreased oxygen. So when the heart contracts, you may remember from school, the process is called cardiac excitation contractile coupling. So actin and myosin slide in opposition of each other. And as they do, they it causes a muscle contraction. This process is extremely dependent on ATP, cellular energy. And without cellular energy, that process is decreased. And all of a sudden, the amount of contraction between the fibers is decreased. This is going to lead to a wall motion abnormality or hypokinesis. As this occurs, the heart becomes a less effective pump. Blood starts to build up as the ventricles are not nearly as effective at ejecting blood. And what you have is a decreased stroke volume. This becomes a vicious cycle if blood flow isn't reestablished to the heart. And people are gonna have hypotension, they're gonna develop lactic acidosis, and cardiac contractility is going to become worse and worse and worse. And potentially ending up in cardiogenic shock. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call him at 504-394-394.
6557. Okay, Jeremy, so we were talking about treatment earlier, treatment of this initial MI that just occurs either in the ER or in the operating room. So why don't you talk to us about what is prescribed by the ACC and the AHA? Yeah, so the treatment is going to be very similar. And let's go back to our ER patient. Think MONA. And that's an acronym. Many of you probably remember this acronym. It stands for morphine, oxygen, nitroglycerin, and aspirin. We want to give morphine because this is going to help decrease preload and also will decrease the chest pain that's associated with an MI. Oxygen, of course, that makes sense. We want to maximize the amount of oxygen that's going to be circulating. Nitroglycerin will help with coronary artery dilation and will also decrease preload. Now, we want to be careful because if the patient's hypotensive, that would be a situation where we would avoid nitroglycerin. So the most common number cited is a systolic blood pressure less than 90. Uh, Also, if there's severe bradycardia, we want to avoid nitroglycerin. Aspirin, either 162 to 365 milligrams. This will help if the MI is likely caused by a thrombus. Okay, so that works for our ER patient and somebody who's awake and compliant. What about our intraoperative patient who is likely experiencing an MI? Yeah, so we could put an NG tube down. We could crush it up. For the aspirin. That's exactly right. We could crush it up and we could put a little fluid in there and instill it into their stomach. There's negatives associated with that, of course. In anesthesia, we never want to put more stuff into the stomach because we're always concerned about aspiration. So what would you do? I would call a cardiologist, and if the cardiologist suggested that I give aspirin uh, via an an NG tube, then I would do it that way. Otherwise, I'm probably not going to go that route. All right, and then we've talked a lot about managing blood pressure, especially if we we have a patient who's experiencing an intraoperative myocardial infarction. So SAS, what kind of things should we focus on when we're managing blood pressure? So we're certainly going to want an arterial line if the patient doesn't already have one. We're going to want to ideally keep a mean arterial pressure greater than 65. We know that's the lower end of cerebral and coronary artery autoregulation. Certainly we're going to want to make sure that we have an additional IV in place if we need to give vasopressors or other medications. All right, fantastic. Let's round this out with a differential diagnosis discussion. So we, and you brought up the point, what if we have hypotension that's unexplained and we have no ST segment changes? What are some other potential diagnoses that we should be considering? Yeah, so in addition to cardiogenic shock, All of the other shock states are associated with hypotension. So we need to rule in or out things that any other shock states. Aortic dissection, another big one, which is incredibly rare but could occur, is acute adrenal crisis. Again, the only sign that you may see under anesthesia is hypotension that doesn't respond to a vasopressor. Electrolyte imbalance, CVA. Did the patient have a PE, esophageal perforation, myocarditis, pericarditis, and in our awake patient in the, oper- in the ER, as we talked about, this could be 
pre- the presentation could be he's having severe GERD or he's having heartburn or he's having you know issues related to discomfort in his jaw. So the differential could be very, very difficult, but certainly you need to be able to run through differentials so that you can make an educated assumption as to what this is, what this is and what's going on. Perfect. Yes. And then obviously arriving at a diagnosis based on the patient's history is going to be very helpful. Okay. Now, so to finish this up, we had mentioned earlier that the primary goal of a patient who's experiencing an acute MI is to get them to the cath lab and establish reperfusion. So we want them to undergo percutaneous coronary intervention within 90 minutes of first medical contact. Sass had mentioned tissue is time. So getting them getting them a cardiologist and getting and having that cardiologist get them into the cath lab. And in this particular patient, they're going to need to stent the left anterior descending coronary artery and hopefully to improve coronary perfusion. In this particular patient, it did, and they were able to improve that to 50, an, an ejection fraction to 50%. So we're liking those numbers. All right, students, we have one question here, your classic NCE and maybe even your CPCA question. So the question reads, which is the most common complication after a carotid endarterectomy? A, myocardial infarction, B, stroke, C, pneumothorax, or D, acute adrenal crisis? This is a a pretty good question because uh, a good distractor is stroke, especially if we're talking carotid endarterectomy. Uh, Pneumothorax is also listed as a potential complication. Acute adrenal crisis, that really doesn't fit anywhere unless the patient has a history of taking steroids or has problems with the adrenal glands. So, Sass, what is the answer? The answer would be, drumroll please, A, myocardial infarction. And you wouldn't think that. You would think that the most common complication would be stroke because of what they're doing Mm -hmm. and the possibility of emboli going up to the brain. However, in terms of data, and you can read conflicting studies that say stroke is the number one complication, MI in a very small percentage is actually a little bit higher. And again, a common NCE classic type question. All right, everyone, that does it for cardiogenic shock and acute myocardial infarction. So thank you for hanging with us for this discussion. Hey, everyone, if you like what you're hearing on this podcast and you want to help us grow, we would certainly appreciate that. Please consider leaving a review, a positive review, and consider sharing it with your anesthesia friends. Word of mouth is the primary way that these pod, that this podcast grows. Okay, CRNA Nation, that's it for this episode. Keep ventilating and we'll catch up with you on the next episode. Thank you. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. 
He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.